Viktor Frankl said, Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's way. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson. Stay tuned for the next hour as Sue explores the human psyche, what makes us tick and how to live better, more fulfilled and more meaningful lives. Only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on High FM on my program Finding Human. My guest today is Mr. L- uh, Luba Maikiso and we are going to be uh, connecting with him via Skype. He is in Cape Town. Craig is going to be setting that up for me. And our topic is searching for identity. Now, Mr. Luba Maikiso has often been on, on High FM and on Howard Feldman's program, and I've heard him a few times, and I asked Lindy, Lindy, we are one of our my colleagues here, um, what she thought if I could get hold of him to ask a few personal questions, and she said she thought he would be fantastic. So thank you, Lindy, for actually suggesting, saying yes to that, because subsequently I have spoken to Luba um, on the telephone. We had a long discussion, and he's prepared to to speak very honestly about his own experiences of growing up in apartheid South Africa, what his experiences are, very different to many other people's and certainly very different to mine, and we will be exploring that. Hello, Mr. Luba Maikiso. Are you on the line? Hi, Sue. Yes, I am. Hello, Luba. It's so good to hear you. Thank you for agreeing to come on my program. I don't know if you heard my introduction there. Um, I was... Uh, I was saying that you are frequently on High FM and that I have heard you and I asked Lindy if, um, if I, if she thought that you would be good on my program to ask some personal questions and answer them and she thought you would be great. And once I spoke to you, I realized how true she was to that. I would like to just uh, introduce you a bit. You are the National Director of the International Christian Embassy in Jerusalem. Our, our topic is searching for identity and I came across this very interesting um, actual thing that says about uh, identity by Parker and Palmer it says identity is often described as finite and consisting of separate and distinct parts for instance family cultural, personal, professional etc yet according to Parker and Palmer it is an ever evolving core within where our genetics, our biology our culture, our loved ones those we cared for, people who have harmed us and people we have harmed, the deeds done, good and ill, to self and others, experiences lived and choices made come together to form who we are at this moment. Now, if we think about your identity and the many parts that have made you into the person you are today, would you agree with that, that it is parts that are made up? Absolutely, because I think my struggle has always been that people want to view identity as something fixed, rigid. And if you recall when we had a chat um, yesterday, that's something I sent through to you, and I said my honest view is that 
maybe 50% of my identity is based on um, on my birth, uh, things that I cannot change that I inherit, who my parents are, where I was born, my skin color, my faith, and all of those issues. So there's certain things that I inherit from my parents from the moment I'm born that comprise my identity. But I, I, I would like to believe that a fair amount of it is, is based on my experiences and choices that I make um, through childhood and, and, and as an adult. So I've always viewed identity as something in motion, not something rigid. Uh, it, 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 it's in motion, it moves, um, um, and, and that's how I've always viewed it. And I think the challenge for me has been, I think people in general are uncomfortable with that face. They prefer something, you know, cast in stone that they can fit into a particular uh, box or a peg and you must fit into that. I think you're so right there, especially in our country, where, country, well, where ethnic identity, um, is, and the racial identity is so often referred to as, you know, that's how you explain a person or discuss who a person is. You discuss them through their ethnic or racial identity. And you're saying you're not going to be fitting into a pig. You're not the pig fitting into the proper hole there. Yes. Yes, absolutely. You you do fit to a to a large extent, but um, but people have this almost perfectly. Uh, they imagine exactly what you should be. You know how you should speak. Um, your choices in terms of let's say everything, be it clothing, be it um, the food you eat, where you stay. I, I've been quite amazed at how prescriptive people can be as to what they expect you to be able to do and what you shouldn't do. And 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 the most bizarre thing for me is that. A lot of this is unspoken. Um, uh, so you, you, you break some of these rules without even knowing it because nobody explained it to you. And, and, and for me, I think the challenge was I grew up in a household where my father didn't place too much value on many things that would form, let's say, a cultural identity, being, let's say, an African. Mm-hmm. Um, so to give you one example, my my... My father was born in uh, in the old trans guy Lusikisiki, which is Ponderland. So, for a great deal of my youth, I assumed that that's where we came from, and from a tribal group, I just assumed that that's where we were from, Bondo, from there. And it was much later that I realized that we actually weren't. His family had um, had travelled and settled there. I'm not sure when, but not his generation, and uh, certainly not his my grandfather. So, one generation probably before my grandfather, but I'm not sure which. So we weren't Amambondo, but for me, I would, I would say they split my life in this way and say for the greatest part, up to maybe age 20, I really couldn't care one way or the other. These things were unimportant to me. I didn't, uh, I wasn't on a search for an identity. I was just interested in just getting on and experiencing and living life. And only when, um, probably when I left high school, a little bit earlier than 20 and got to varsity, that's when I started to realize that, whoa, some of these things are a bit more different than I'd imagined. And uh, and then it was a case of trying to find my own way. And then maybe later on in life, let's say maybe after the age of 30, that I started to f- try and figure out and say, well, where exactly do I fit? And do I need to fit somewhere? And I think for a great deal of time, I tried to fit mm. until more repeaters and said, well, back at this, I, I don't need to fit. So that need for recognition, that is, is a human need, uh, you say that that was with you until, well, literally when you were in your 30s. Do you feel now that you do not have that need for recognition? It, it, it's not so much 
a need for recognition and more than often the need to fit in. Mm-hmm. So in my particular case, um, I ended up at, um, at university and whenever I would drive in my car with my friends, they didn't understand my music. So I would have listened, let's say, to, to rock. You know, mm-hmm. I grew up in Cape Town. All the kids were white, so the music I listened to was rock. You know, we listened to Springbok Radio before there was 5FM. <laughs> and so my experience with music <laughs> took love. So I, I grew up listening to, to New Wave, British New Wave. So Depeche Mode, um, you know, Yazoo, Big Country, Simple Minds, that kind of stuff. Um, and maybe Brian Adams if he went across the Atlantic. So that was the music I grew up listening to. So when I got to last year, my friends listened to very different music. I mean, they were listening to R&B, you know, essentially what most black people would listen to. Mm-hmm. So one friend then politely said, Sure, you have very interesting music. And it was his way of trying to say, what the hell are you actually playing? So I, I got the hint that this wasn't, you know, going down well with my mate. Sure. So, so, so what I would do to fit in is I would literally go and buy CDs, music of what I thought my friends would listen to and they would like. And then I would play that in the car when I traveled with them. And the moment I was traveling alone, I would take that tape or that CD out mm-hmm. and listen to what I wanted to listen to. Mm-hmm. So I would almost force myself to listen to other people's music choices so that I could fit in. We're going to get and back I'm, to that in a right. moment. Thank you. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Luba, I'm back with you. This is Sue Jackson on Finding Humor. My, my guest is Finding Humor. I said humor. Mr. Luba Maikiso. And our topic is searching for identity. Luba, you were talking about the music and the different music and trying to fit in with your friend's music. But can we go back quite a way back from that before then? You were brought up in the Eastern Cape. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. In a small town called Alice. Okay. Um, most people won't know it, but if you think of Forte University, that's our claim to fame. Uh, okay, then I do know it. And your parents were both educators. So did they, yes. did they place a lot of emphasis on, um, on education? I think they did because my, um, though they both came from Transkei, so Alice was in Siskei, and I think what drove them was that my, my father, uh, had managed to get to matric and then he was told, you know, go and get a job. So he worked and worked in Umtata uh, as a clerk in the government department. And my mother was a teacher and they both had no tertiary education. So they moved deliberately to Alice because it was a university. So whilst they were raising my brother and I, they only had two children, they were studying. So my father managed to study and um, when he passed away at 49, he was doing his PhD. Mm. But all his studies, he had done it whilst um, raising us as a family and my mother had a, had a master's degree. Now the interesting thing was, he, he always said to me and my brother, I can't leave you a fortune, but what I can leave you is is a decent education. And the education will, will level the playing fields between you and any kid out there, be they white, green, pink, or whatever. And he mm. said, that's what you know, my legacy will be to you. So if you look at where he studied um, his senior qualification, his master's, he did it uh, at Orange Free State, and, um, and his PhD, he was doing it at Poch. And he mm. couldn't speak a word of Afrikaans, but Gosh. he would say to me, this is where you go because the best, uh, you know, it would say the apartheid government is pouring tons of money into those institutions for research, and that's where you need to study, not where they want you in a typical black university. And my mother also went to, to Free State as well. Mm-hmm. So 
so that was their passion. And, and it wasn't a case of sitting down and saying, you know, my father, bless him, he, he was a bit of a dictator. He never really sat down with you and said, what do you think? So he chose the schools. We didn't have a discussion. So there was he no choice that. involved. No, 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 no. My mother would, she would get a letter. He would say to her, here you go. You've been accepted for your master's. And my mother would say, but I'm tired of studying. And he, in his mind, if you were a human being alive, you should be studying. You can't be idle. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even the careers, me going to law, my brother going into medicine was almost their dreams more than, more than ours. Mm-hmm. And so what was his decision for you, for your education, for your young well, education? It was interesting because most of the early primary school was in Alice, in a traditional African school with bound education. And then the one December, he said, you guys are off to Cape Town to school. He never actually mentioned that it was a, a private school or a, you know, a whites-only school at the time. He just said, you're off to Cape Town. We were excited, and um, he didn't even so make the trip with us. So it was myself, my brother. Um, my mum and uh, and a cousin who was tasked with driving for my mum because it was about a thousand hundred kilometers quite far, and I only realised when I got to school that oops, this is not what I had in mind because all the kids are white. And, and this was apartheid South Africa we're talking yeah. about. This is 1980, so he had never been to Cape Town, had never been to the school, but what he did was he wrote to the school. And he applied, but he, he then asked our, our priest to give a testimonial about us, and then he asked the bishop in the diocese. So when he applied, he said to the school, here are my sons, um, they're good Christian kids, they're Anglican, the school is Anglican, so I would expect you to take them, and if you won't take them, I'd be curious to know, based on biblical reasons, why you won't take them. <laughs> and so the school was Gosh. in a bit of a quandary. Wow. What, oh, he was very determined. What, he actually had a lot of courage. Yes, yes, tremendously. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think for me it was a rude wake-up call because, um, you know, my parents went around. So for all of my schooling, I was a boarder. And, you know, um, you had a weekly boarder who went home on, on a Friday and came back on Monday, mm-hmm. or termly boarders, which was us. So you went to school in January and came back during the Easter holidays and then mm-hmm. went back to come back in June. So it spent three months away from home. So it, it was quite tough. So nothing prepared you for it. He didn't actually tell you that you you were going to be the only uh, black boy in your class um, or well, in your boarding, in your dormitory? Or in the primary school. So mm-hmm. I was the only black boy in primary, and my brother was the only black boy in high school. Mm-hmm. And my brother was older, two years older, so he kind of knew he, we were walking into trouble. So um always tells me that when she dropped us off, I kept asking her when she was going to go because I wanted to go and play with other boys. So I kept saying, Mom, can you please go because the boys are playing outside. I want to go and join them. Mm-hmm. So I was blissfully naive of mm-hmm. what I was walking into. My brother, being older, kept saying to my mom, can you stay on? Can you stay on? So he tried to get her to stay as long as she possibly could with him mm-hmm. because he knew that once she left, we were on our own. Right. And I was just naive. You were totally naive. So what woke you up? To the fact that actually there is a difference there. Look, there were, there were things too that were very different. You, you know, at that stage you didn't grow up with bedtime stories. So mm-hmm. come sleeping now, you're sleeping in a dormitory, which itself is a, is a bit of a challenge because I'm used to sleeping at home and maybe sharing a room with my brother. Now I've got six or seven other boys, and you have to speak English. Now remember that growing up you spoke Kosa. I still remember my mother sending us to one of her colleagues to fetch a book. 
and a white colleague, and we couldn't speak English, and she had to almost give us a script. This is what you're going to say to greet. This is what he's going to say. So we had to memorize the entire dialogue, and we walked for two kilometers with no conversation other than just reciting what we're going to say. <laughs> so you get to school where you have to do English first language, which is a huge step compared to what I was studying, and you have to speak English all the time because nobody else speaks anything else. Even the cleaning staff were colored, so they spoke either Afrikaans or English. <laughs> and I had to pass English and pass Afrikaans or, or I would fail. And Afrikaans, I was exceptionally poor. I mean, I think I got something like 15 or 18% mm-hmm. for my June exams. And then I realized that if I flanked Afrikaans, I was going to fail. So it, it, it was a huge challenge. And slowly, you know, scales kind of came off. One of the boys invited us. He lived in Malmesbury for a weekend away. And I jumped at the opportunity and my brother declined, again, thinking it wouldn't be a good idea. So you can imagine, 1980, you pitch up on a farm, it's the housemaster and his two sons and myself and our friend. And uh, we get to the farm, we jump on the tractor, we drive around the farm, all excited. Then come dinner time, and we go and sit for dinner. And as is custom at school, we go and sit at the table. And then I could see from the staff in the farm that the farm is rather peculiar. And then it started to dawn that, okay, maybe this is not what the world is like. So in some naive way, school almost forced me to think that this was society, and it wasn't. So I would get them these rude shocks and then come sleeping time and the staff on the farm were asking the owner, so where is he going to sleep? And he was like, no, the boys will all sleep together. And I would be looking and thinking, why is there discussion? Mm-hmm. So over time, you know, it started to dawn on me. Then we had to take the suburban train and, you know, we'd walk up to the train station, buy tickets and hop onto the train. And the train was segregated and then the conductor would come and he would say, why are you here? And I'm like, why, where should I be? And he'd say, well, there's a compartment for you, you know, third class, that's where you go to go. Mm. So occasionally... And how did your friends react to that, the friends that you were with? They, it was new for them, so... Over time, I would say to them, guys, please don't buy a first-class ticket for me. It's it's a bit of a bruising encounter. And they were like, Luba, stop being full of nonsense. Let's get in this carriage together. And I would say, look, you're the one that gets dragged and humiliated. So if if, it, if the conductor was Afrikaans, he would usually swear and curse and take my ticket and, and stamp it and move on. If he was colored, then I'd be dragged all the way to third class. Mm-hmm. So, you know, over time, my friends understood. But it was, you know, you, you learn to toe the line. What a, uh, what a trauma this, uh, for a young boy. We're going to get back yeah. to that shortly, Luba. We're just going to advert. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human, and I'm back with my guest, Mr. Luba Maikiso, and we are talking via Skype. And our topic is searching for identity. If you would like to contact us, please do on 34519. You can SMS us or you can telegram us on 061-895-1019. Luba, we're back together again. And I just wanted to know your your friends. It must have been a very rude awakening for you and for them to realize how different you were. I mean, you were living in almost... uh, an unbelievable, I think you said to me, a mythical world. Yes, it, it was mythical in the sense that it gave you a sense of you living, you know, in a white community and you being as a black child, so everybody could live together in harmony. And at the time, it, it certainly wasn't. So my experiences then were that 
the world is fine. And, uh, you know, you had all your friends who were white, you could get on with them. And there were initial issues I had to overcome. A lot of them thought that I came from a fabulously wealthy family, and I had to tell them no. And, you know, the typical... Uh, crazy notions that we ask, is your father a chief or a king? And I would say, no, I'm not royalty. I'm just an ordinary, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, player, mm-hmm. no such thing. Just but you were morning. very out of your role there and uh, of their, their, uh, con- perceived role of, yes. of you. Mm-hmm. The, the perception is so wrong today. You know, for instance, just before I went on air, I had a friend who, who, who was kind of, uh, talking about the great things that the British did to the country and everything. So I asked him and I said, what exactly was that? So I said, well, take the school that you went to. I couldn't go there. And so often people have the perception that you were privileged, mm-hmm. that somehow you, you were special. And I would say to them, it may sound as if it was a privileged out upbringing, but it certainly was very traumatic. So, for instance, and came with a me, huge cost. Sorry? It came with a huge cost to you as a young person. It was a huge cost, but it's, it's a cost that nobody knew who was outside of the school or who wasn't close to me. Mm-hmm. Because remember now, I, I didn't have parents to go back home to and say, I'm struggling with racism in, in, in boarding school or at home. I had a housemaster who was white who can't relate to what I'm experiencing. So when I got to high school, I would find that with a lot of German kids who came from uh, Namibia, the old Southwest Africa, and they were incredibly racist. And we had a, one or two who were French, Italian, and uh, a lot of guys who came from from Zim, from Zimbabwe, who who had their own pain and trauma uh, from obviously you know their experiences there, who were who, had, who were quite racist. So you had a whole bunch of people who were quite racist, and all of them had a way to relate to black people, and they had their own special terms for black people. So the K word was never used at school, but I knew that the Germans would call you had a term for you, the Italians had a term for you, and you, I picked this up often where. I'd walk into a room and people were talking and, uh, and they would talk about a certain person and I didn't understand the term. So I would pull one friend and say, what does the term Zotomavros mean? And then the poor guy would blush and I would say, but tell me. And reluctantly would say, well, it's a black person. Then mm-hmm. when I reviewed the conversation, then I understand that the conversation was actually about me. Oh and it could gosh, be actually had in my presence and I wouldn't be able to understand that mm-hmm. they were speaking about me. So how did you survive that time? What, what skills did you as a person develop to actually survive that time when you couldn't go home and discuss it with your parents? There was not really a mentor that you could go to. Well, not, not directly. You know, at, at school, fortunately, a lot of the teachers um, were, were from the UK, British, mm. and their preoccupation was more against Afrikaans people. So there was a very strong English Afrikaans um, issue, almost a remnant from the Anglo-Boer War. So mm. our poor Afrikaans teachers took a lot of flack. So you weren't the primary target um, in school. Mm. But when I left school, certainly I struggled because the moment I stepped outside school, there were, there were, there was, there were school boycotts and things like those. So I had relatives in the township and I couldn't visit them because I would have to wear uniform. Mm. Now, where I think I was stretched was on the sports field. Sports was compulsory, and I happened to excel in cricket and rugby. And um, and when we played the African schools, then the racial abuse was quite pronounced. The, the the referee would only speak in Afrikaans, and I was struggling to understand the language. He would refuse, uh, and the other players would taunt you. So if I went to play in Paul or Stellenbosch, you walk into a rugby field where you had all these mothers, the standings on the sideline, and they would open. 
hurled the Craig word at you nonstop from the moment the game started. And the boys themselves called you that. And the referee could hear it, but he would do nothing. But he would wait for my response. If I saw back, he would penalize me. Gosh. So I then mm-hmm. learned that um, if I retaliated, I would be penalized. And my school was very old-fashioned and traditional English. So if you got into a fight or swore, you got six cuts on Monday. A gentleman doesn't do that. It doesn't matter who provoked you, what happened, the school didn't want to know. So I knew then that retaliation only got me six cuts. So it wasn't worth retaliating. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing is the person who helped me was my rugby coach, um, Jeff Burton, who came from Zim of all places. And he said to me, Luba, you're playing against an African school. They worship rugby. It's their religion. And, and he says... They're playing against an English school with a black kid. The only thing that matters is the final score, not the insults that are thrown at you. He says, if people want to behave like pigs and wallow in the mud, it's, it, it makes no sense for you to join them and descend to their level and wallow in the mud. So don't hurl insults. You respond by scoring a try. Mm-hmm. You wing, get the ball, score a try. He says, when we finish the game, and we walk away. The only thing that will remain in five, ten years' time in the school magazines is the result that St. George's beat, let's say, Paul Ross or whatever. This is the score. Here are the try scorers. Hmm. So that's who helped me. But so I was a kid, so it took maybe two, three years for that to sink in because the instinct as a boy is somebody insults you or pushes you, you want to hit them back. So for a great deal of time, I, I would always, I would try and strike back and. And over time, I learned that it only got me into more trouble. I mean, I wasn't an aggressive person, but I had to retaliate differently. But tell and me, I think uh, that's what then your, got your, me through. We got you through. What about your teammates? You know, I know at the moment in soccer worldwide, international, there are racial uh, slurs being thrown at the at players, and teams are now saying that they are refusing to play. So. How did your team respond when they heard the racial slurs being thrown at well, you? Well, two things. The school would give me a free pass. So the school would say to me, if we play these certain schools, I'm allowed to sit the game out and not play because they knew that I'd be taunted. But then I said, look, this is my team. These are my mates. I'm not going to let them down. I want to play. So I had the option to sit the games out. So what the team members like to do, well, you know, it, it, it's not something that you'd say with pride today, but we would decide that we'd you know, focus on that boy. So if a particular boy, let's say a, um, a wing or a fullback or a center, uh, abused me and called me a particular name, I would then, and my teammates would hear it, then they would say, guys, we've got to get number 10 or whatever. So the next time he got the ball, he'd be tackled very hard. And in those days, you could still tackle the guy and lie on top of him. So he'd get a few punches thrown in for good measure. <laughs> so, so we'd almost Revenge. focus on the guy. You'd say, that's the guy, and then we focus on him. But we learned it didn't help. You know, our captain, a good friend of mine, we called him Porky. So at one game in Musenberg, a guy called me K-Word, and Porky was next to me, and Porky got upset and, and punched the guy, and he got sent off the field. And I said to him, Porky, you're not helping, because the coach, the, the referee would wait for a response, either from me or from my teammates. So whoever responded got penalized. Hmm. So, so in some cases, they would be upset, and, uh, and they would be penalized. And I said to Porky, you know, I've had to learn the hard way. You can't hit these guys. You just have to figure out a, a smarter way to respond. But it must have been nice to know that there was someone standing beside you. 
it was nice to know that people were standing beside you. I mean, look, not everybody, uh, but we were we were a small school. So mm-hmm. when I got to primary school, there must have been about 101 kids in the entire primary school. So we weren't a big school mm-hmm. in the size of, let's say, for instance, let's say a Bishops or a Hilton were a small school. So, but certainly people will stood next to you. They invited you to their homes. So I was never short of invitations to go to people's homes for weekends and birthdays and things like that. So and then, I think that's what contributed to that false sense of, of, um, of accepted. Yes, I'm, I'm quite sure, which must have been very confusing when you went out, as you said, to university, which we're going to go back to in a moment. But what I wanted to know from you, during school holidays, you would go home to the Siska, to Alice then, I should imagine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, and, I'll go home. And how so, were you accepted there? Um, it was fine because in those days you had like the Cape Education, JMB, a different education system, um, education system around the country. So when I got home, um, the, the terms were different. So often when I got home, my friends were at school. Now, what made life, I suppose, easier was I had an incredibly strict father. We were never allowed to go out and play with friends. So when I got home with my brother, because we're at the same school, we either could sit and play on our computers. You had then, um, I think, BBC microcomputers. You could sit and program your computer. You could ride your bicycle, or you could go and play tennis. Those were your three options, mm. but you could never visit a friend. So we weren't exposed to to, to friends much, but we picked up um, – there was some animosity in Alice because the, there were a bunch of academics who had sent their children to uh, a boarding school, a black boarding school in, in, in KZN, and they were seen as a pioneer. So when my father sent us to uh, a private school, they weren't very happy, and then word spread that we had gone to a colored school uh, in Cape Town, and then people would laugh and say, but why would you go to a colored school? And, but we just left it at that. But I think the impact for me was... Uh, a loss of, uh, you know, proficiency in my home language, Tosa, because at school I would speak English, you know, the whole time I was there, and I, I, I wouldn't see my brother except on weekends. So when I got home, um, I struggled. My mother, my mother would laugh and said, you know what, I send you to boarding school, you come back, you drink so much tea and coffee, because we're used to like breakfast tea, lunch <laughs> tea, you know, dinner. Very and tea. English. <laughs> drinking, you're drinking six, seven cups of tea a day. And uh, but it was a strange relationship too because remember my school was very English and cold so mm-hmm. it wasn't very warmy huggy so even when I came home you know people laugh when I tell them that I'd get to the airport and I would shake my mum's hand mm-hmm. and after not seeing her for three months she would shake our hands we loved it a bit she loved it a bit but but that's that's the kind of affection that we almost school to, to, to display. I wrote to my parents once a week mm-hmm. I mean on Sunday I went to write an obligatory letter home. And and so it was, home was literally just, again, just the two of us. But I'll tell you a crazy thing, though. I've got a friend who stays in Randburg, Andrew. He asked to come home one Easter holiday. And naively, I said to my mom, can Andrew come home with me? And my mother said, sure, certainly. So here was this white boy from Randburg flying with me uh, to the homeland, to Alice, for Easter holidays. And he spent the holidays with us. Mm-hmm. The neighbors thought, I, I cannot imagine, but I was too young to imagine. I thought it was fine. And only later did I realize that this must have been quite awkward for my parents and, you know, everybody concerned. <laughs> I'm quite sure it must have been, but, but you were, and you were still then not allowed to go and play with the other boys. 
No, not really. You know, we 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 knew other uh, boys around, so we'd meet them at a tennis court or whatever. But my parents certainly wouldn't allow you to say, "Hey, Dad, I'm off to go and play at so and so's house." No, that that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. My father would say, "If you're bored, you want to do something, uh, computer, bicycle, or I'll take you somewhere." We'd go to Hogsberg and and hike. We'd go somewhere, but we'd go as a family. But you couldn't go on your own. We we went once to town which was about a two-kilometer walk to fetch the post. And when we got back, my father uh, punished us. He says, where have you been? We said, we'd been to the post office with our cousins. And he said, but who asked you to go there? And we said, nobody. And he said, well, you will have to pay for that. Mm-hmm. So so he was not somebody to be messed with. Mm-hmm. He was yeah. misled. Yeah, it's, it sounds like it. And But did you feel that you actually had a relationship with your relatives um, apart from your parents, did you have any relationship with cousins, with uncles, aunts, you know, so that you actually could identify culturally with, uh, with my, them? A bit of a difficult one because my, my father remained preferred to keep alone. I'm not quite sure why. As I said, he grew up in Lusik. He said he had six siblings. Mm-hmm. And I only realized that he had six in January. I thought he had five. Now, of those six siblings, um, four uh, passed away without me ever meeting them, ever at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, two I met twice at a funeral and at his funeral. That's the only two times I met his two eldest brothers. He had a sister I'd never met. For some reason... He kept away from his family. He spoke about some of them fondly. He even had a brother who was a World War II vet and who was a prisoner of war um, in North Africa. I met that one twice. So mm-hmm. he somehow kept quite far from family. He had a motto, Sue, which was quite amusing. He said, don't visit people because they might feel obliged to visit you back. So, 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 so we never visited people. Um, you know, we, we, we seldom visited people. So we'd go wow. to the transcript if there was a funeral uh. or there was a wedding or something like that. So short of something happening, we didn't visit people except for one uncle, um, a chap who was married to my, my, my aunt, my mum's sister in, in, in Durban. He somehow liked him and we'd visit maybe every second year in KZN. And but, was he allowed um, to come back and visit you? They seldom came to visit us, but uh, they could come. Then I had one cousin, but he's older. He was about 10, 15 years older, who was a lecturer at Forte that I was quite close to. And uh, and so, but we're of a different uh, kind of generation, age group, but we're cousins. And tell me, how, looking back on this, what in your own life, with your own family, what have you brought in that's different, that you deliberately wanted to have something different compared to what you were brought up with? Well, look at a couple of things. For me, I think the one major takeaway was I had certain interests and passions at school that my father just refused to see because he was so doggedly determined to, to, to worry about education. So, for instance, when I came to school, I excelled in sport. I had to play sport. Mm-hmm. So I had colors in athletics. Um, I captained uh, second-team cricket. I played first-team rugby. I played hockey. So when I came home at the end of the school term, I would come home with his trophies, and I would say to my father, Dad, look at my trophies. Mm-hmm. And his immediate answer was always, so where's the school report? And he wouldn't even for a second pause to pick up a trophy and say, wow, fantastic. He would just literally just say, and where's the report? And then when he did speak further, he said to me, don't you think you could be investing this time in your studies rather than focusing on sport? 
uh, on idle things like sports. And I had to explain to him and say, Dad, in these types of schools, Sport is compulsory because my dad thought in the African school, sport was played by the older kids and it was kind of a sacrifice. And I said, I'm not giving up studying time. I have to be in a sports field. And I, no matter what I tried, I just couldn't get him to, to appreciate that. My brother was different. He was a serious bookworm who needed to come first or second in class. I wasn't that kind of kid. I was the kind of kid who was happy just to move to the next grade. I wasn't losing sleep about my grades as my brother was. So I think that probably drove him a bit batty as well. Sure. But I felt, I felt he never cared. So, um, when, when I moved from St. from St. George's to St. Andrews, which is only 100 Ks down the road from home, I said to him one day, Dad, it's sports day. Please come and watch me. He said, what time? I said, half past eight in the morning. And um, I won um, 200 meters, came second in 100, and won 400 and got my colors and long jump and everything else. He arrived after everything was finished. Aww. And his first question was, are you done? And I said, yes, I said, let's go home. And, and so for me, How that hurt. I, I, ne- mm. I never realized it hurt until I was about 30. Mm. And, and then I realized that part of me seriously resented the fact that he was never there for me in the things that I liked. Mm. We're going to get back to that in a moment, Luba. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson. I'm back with Mr. Luba Maikiso, and our topic is searching for identity. And we've been talking about his life uh, at school during the apartheid era at a white boarding school and his experiences also with, with his parents and especially his dad who didn't really understand what was important in his life then. So Luba, just going back to that, if you look back now, what were the strengths that actually helped you cope with all of those hurts and um, disappointments, actually, from from school, from home? What skills did you develop? Well, I think I learned a coping mechanism like all men where I literally just have pigeonholes. So I could take something and just put it in there and just leave it and not dig it up. So I was... I wouldn't say it's the best coping mechanism, but it allows you to move forward. Mm. But you don't address the trauma. So what I then found was um, you still need to deal with the trauma. For instance, take the racism issue. I developed quite a, a dry, wicked sense of humor to deal with issues. And it helped me cope, but it can be destructive. So um, when I was in adversity, I had a friend who was a neighbor, and we were joking about politics. And my humor could be quite cutting. Mm. And, I mean, he was a guy my age, and we're debating, and I could argue about a point I didn't believe in for hours. And he mm. literally just broke down and cried. Mm. And then my wife said to me, you are very cruel. And I said, why? She said, how could you do that? And I said, no, he must be a man and learn to argue and stand his ground. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that part of me had built these barriers where I could – I could argue, I could laugh at certain things. You know, I went to, I went to an, an event and this event didn't start a time. And I could, you know, so rather than focus on the problem, I would look at the humor. So because I had to, I had to deal with a lot of racism, I found humor and I would often say, you know what, you need to learn to laugh at yourself. And in some ways it was escaping dealing with the issue. So 
as a child, it helped me to cope. But what it didn't always do was address the issue. So mm-hmm. what I could do was almost just bury something and, and, and park it there. Um, but you know, Victor Frankl says that it's, uh, that humor more than anything else in the human makeup can actually afford us an aloofness, an ability almost to rise above any situation, even if it's only for a few seconds. No, that's why I'm saying it did. So I would, I would laugh. So for instance, I would, I would laugh at, let's say, I would laugh at, at racial stereotypes mm-hmm. and I wouldn't be offended. So a way I found to cope was, I would not be an, an insult, a racial insult would not hurt me because I would say to myself, it doesn't define me, you know, and then I was able to tease people and look at what, you know, what's a typical Afrikaner, what's a typical German, whatever. So as boys, you would, you would kind of have those stereotypes. And then in, in, in our way, it was a way of coping with it, but other people didn't appreciate it, you know, um, so when I look at African time, people always being late and certain things. So I would laugh at certain qualities that are associated with black people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I would find that other people wouldn't find that funny, uh, who are black yeah. people. Be no, I'm and sure. I, yeah. And, and Luba, you, I know that you're writing a, a book at the moment. What is it that you want to actually put across in this, in the book? Uh, you, you said that conformity is king in, in the South African society and that we have a paranoid fascination with identity, culture and heritage to the extent you said that the understanding and correct practice of these issues becomes the epitome of how we define ourselves. Yeah, so, so I think my issue has been, as I said to you earlier, the first 20 years of my life, I didn't really care about identity. I was, I was a kid, I was, um, you know, a teenager. When I got to university, that's the first time I ran into, let's say, student politics, and then had to examine who I was. And then, um, so, where I struggled was mannerism, table manners. You know, if you look at a typical African setting versus um, an English setting, how you, you eat at a, at a table is very different. Mm. So what then I found myself was culturally I'd been brought up in one system, in a very English system, in a very cold and aloof system, uh, you know, I, I can I can safely say. Mm. And yet the African culture is different. Uh, I grew up not hugging my, my own mother. Yet in the African culture, people are very embracive and, 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 and spontaneous. And, and I found I struggled with those issues. So part of the struggle for me was how do I fit? Because one, I couldn't speak my language properly. And two, I didn't understand a lot of issues and do's and don'ts. And so over time, I spent a great deal of time trying to conform to please people. But then I've got to a stage where I said, no, I don't need to conform. Uh, I am who I am and people need to accept me as who I am. So, for instance, last weekend, there was a, a soccer match, Kaiser Chiefs, I think, against Orlando Pirates. I don't follow SA football, but that is something that people will not like to hear, mm-hmm. that I don't know a single player in those teams, and, I, and it doesn't resonate with me. So, mm-hmm. for me, I think it's best encapsulated. My wife always will tease me and say, you're a real coconut, and I'll say, now, there lies the problem. If you grow up in one society that is very uh, English, yet you're African, and you your mannerism and how you think and how you approach things is often different to your society. Do you now make a, a trek and go back and, and, and unlearn and relearn what, what, what people expect you to do? Or do you say, you know what, this is where I am. I'm comfortable. Here I am. Mm-hmm. So um, my, I think for me, you know, I've, I've got a, a title where I'm saying a walk between two worlds and I'm saying there are two worlds that don't always intersect, that may collide. 
and I'm happy to be in between them. I don't need to, you know, force myself into whatever side to please people, which is what I've tried to do, uh, be it, let's say, from a faith and language and all of those issues. So, for instance, when I go to the old trans guy, my mum-in-law passed away um, last year, and we had to speak at the funeral, and I said to my wife, I don't mind speaking, but I can't address a crowd in cluster because um, I, I don't have the vocabulary. And then I had to say eventually, you know what, to honor her, I will speak. But, well, I'm sorry, it's going to be 80% English and 20% Kosa. And whatever people think of it is not my business because people will think that you're trying to be aloof and trying to pretend you're better. So I've given up trying to please people and say, this is who I am. I've been brought up differently. I don't uh, practice a lot of African customs. My father never did. So it's not that I'm being rebellious, but I've been raised in a family where we don't practice uh, customs and my faith doesn't agree with me practicing those customs. Now, if that offends people, well, I'm sorry, it's too bad. But I, I refuse to conform, and and so I'm saying, accept me as who I am, not who you want me to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm I'm also thinking, just listening to you, that a lot of your experiences have actually led you to make the choices that you have made. In, in how you approach, for instance, I'm thinking about, uh, Israel. You've got a Facebook forum called My Brother's Keeper. Um, so in many ways, you also, because of your experiences, you look at the world differently, don't you? Yes, I always say I, I look at the world differently, not how people want me to see it. I'm, I'm happy to, to have a different view. Mm. Uh, I'm happy not to be popular. Um, I don't. I don't strive to be popular, but I always say I need to be true, and uh, and I'm and I'm and I'm happy to learn and to grow. So on uh, whether it's a personal um, a personal journey, you know, for instance, to go back to a personal one, I've had to learn that my kids prefer uh, a lot of embrace and and, and and warmth, which doesn't come easy for me. We're so going to get back to that, Luba. That's an important point. We're going to get back to that in a moment. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, Luba. I'm back with Luba Maikiso. This Hi. is Sue Jackson on Searching for Identity. That's our topic. Um, Luba, we, we actually are, are going through time so quickly. There's so much still to discuss. But going back to your own children, you were discussing how your children like you to hug them and you've had to relearn certain behaviors. Tell me about bringing up children in your world. It's been different. You know, like I said, you, I grew up with no bedtime stories, but I've had to realize that this is what they want. They want bedtime stories, that my children want uh, a great deal of affection. Fortunately, my wife is very different to me. So she comes from a family of five girls, so they're very happy. And I've had to get over a lot of um, things that I wasn't comfortable with. I I, I was quite introverted, and even after we got married, when um, even before we got married, when we visit family, we'd arrive at my aunt's house, and my brother and I would run for the first room and hide behind the headboard and not, not come out for hours. So when I got <laughs> married, I would often say to my wife, "When your when your relatives visit, please make sure they visit during the day, so I don't have to see people and have to hide them because." I, I hated being forced to hug people because they would hug when they arrived and when they left and they would do this thing for the whole weekend and say, but if I hugged you yesterday, surely I don't have to, have to hug you um, <laughs> the next day. So, so I really struggled with a lot of that. And what sort of like got the ice breaking was 
with the kids. And my wife remarked and said, wow, you, you as a family are incredibly cold. And I struggled because part of me resented the fact I thought she was judging us as a family mm-hmm. that we were, we were cold because we didn't embrace our mother. So once my male ego had managed to subside, I then thought, okay, but she does have a point. But instinctively, I wouldn't. So I think the icebreaker came. I had a lady who, who worked in one of the branches of the Standard Bank. She called me once and said, look, I've got a very difficult client. Please come and help me on Monday with the client. And she set up a whole mythical story. I arrived on Monday to help her with the client. And you know what? There was no client. She lined up every single staff member who was female and she said, you're going to hug all of them. So it's like I died a thousand times because it's granted like three staff members. So over time, I've had to learn because my kids will come to me and say, Dad, you want a hug? And then the girls would say, but that's not a proper hug. You know, uh, both, you know, you need to use both arms. You need to do this. Mm. So even till this day, they still go on about it. But I've had to say, I need to be there for them. I need to support them. Um, I have to learn and, 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 and see some of the pain that I went through and be there for them. So even when they have really crazy dreams that I don't understand, I, I have to be there and, and support. But I have to be physically and emotionally present. Um, I felt my parents were, were not always present in that regard. So I've had to you know, learn a lot from them in terms of what do they want from me. And uh, I can provide material things, I can provide emotional support. And uh, so it, it, it's, been, it's been a challenge. So I would say I've probably learned more from them than anything, and I've had to learn from, from my wife as well. But it's difficult because you're a man, and the last thing you enjoy is being told that you're <laughs> doing this wrong. And on that note, to, we're going to coming. actually have to begin to end. But I'd just like to say that you... You know what, you, you wrote me a thing and you said, who am I? And, and you've transformed that into who do I choose to be? So Craig is telling me I have to wrap up, but Luba, That's I right. just wish you blessings on this journey and I would like you to come back on so we can discuss a few other issues, which, you know, there's still so much to discuss. And if this has helped just one person understand identity and who we are, then I'll, I think you and I have uh, succeeded in having a really good program. Thank you so much, Luba, for being on Chai FM with me. Take care. Thank you. God Thank bless. you. Bye. Bye.